Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Communications and Media with ABWE, joined again, as always, by Scott Dunford, pastor of Redeemer Church in Fremont, California, and pastor Stephen Meister of... The name of your church? Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel Baptist in Church. Sacramento, California. California. Sacramento, California. Right. All right. Yeah. That's so right. we've got two jet lagging people on the show here That's today. Right. So this might not go well. We'll just <laughs> we'll just see. But we are coming to you from Matthews, North Carolina at the Radius International Missiology Conference 2022. Been capturing content here all week and excited for this particular conversation. Uh, we've had some very short, like kind of just five, ten minute, you know, hey, how you doing? Tell us what you do. But this, I think we can dive a little bit deeper into some theological things, which will be exciting. Yeah. But uh, in addition to your pastoral ministry, tell us about that, but also tell us about what you do with Bible Translation Fellowship. Yeah, wonderful. Um, thanks, guys. Glad to, glad to be with you. So I'm one of the preaching pastors at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sacramento and serve alongside my fellow elders there. And one of the uh, other roles I'm privileged to serve in ministry is as a board member of Bible Translation Fellowship, which is, explains my presence here at, at Radius. And we've been involved with that as a church from the beginning. I've been friends with the founder even before that, and he was a formerly a staff member of our church there in Emmanuel. And we started uh, BTF as an integrated auxiliary of our church for a while. It's now its own separate organization. And in short, uh, Bible Translation Fellowship exists to see the reintegration, the reincorporation of Bible translation with the mission of the church um, in contrast to recent modern era of separating that as a technicality outside the mission of evangelism, church planning, and church strengthening. Yeah, yeah. And Kyle, your founder, um, who you referenced for Bible Translation Fellowship, he's been on the show as well. Kyle D., we want to withhold his last yeah. name for security. Uh, but you can go back into the archives and listen to that good conversation do go with back Kyle. To the do go back in the archives, find that episode. It was definitely worth listening it to. It was, yeah, um, absolutely. So walk us through that, though. Why is Bible translation so critical to missions? Why do we tend to separate that from the core mm -hmm. task of evangelism, discipleship, church planting? Well, uh, if we would take for granted and, and sort of just saying what's obvious is uh, the Bible is good for faith and practice. Of course, we all believe that. It's the Word of God. And so uh, Bible, having Bibles is critical to the worship of the church, and we can even get into it later and in how we confess that for those of us who are uh, confessing the Second London Baptist Confession or the Westminster Confession of Faith that are identical on this issue. And um, it is the, the task of Bible translation to come alongside and incorporate with the discipling of the Church of the Nations and teaching them to obey all that the Lord has commanded. They need to be able to hear and understand that. Now, obviously, that can be done via translation audibly uh, for a certain period of time, uh, but critical is having the written and printed scriptures in the, as our confession says, vulgar tongues or ordinary language of the common people. And so Bible translation is critical to uh, church missions, the, the spread of the church, uh, evangelism. Uh, and it has been seen, however, as a merely linguistic or um, other technicality outside of the theological and evangelistic endeavor of missions in the last couple of generations. And so one of the things at BTF we like to um, uh, call the Christians back to is remembering uh, the, the pastor translator, and uh, that's Kyle's um, verbiage and title, that goes back, and especially our heritage as Protestants and as Reformed Christians, uh, we often will forget and we will highlight uh, John Calvin as a preacher and Martin Luther as, as preachers and theologians, which of course they were, uh, but they were translators yeah, and they were yeah. involved with translation. Yeah. And, and so yeah. recovering our heritage 
as Protestant Christians that we are founded on pastor translators, um, that alongside their understanding of preaching the gospel and planting churches or reforming the church, um, getting God's word into the language and hands of God's people was seen as, as integral to that mission. And that fits beautifully hand in glove with Radius, where yeah. we're at right now, too. Yeah. Their model being go to an unreached language group and not only evangelize, plant a church, but you're probably going to be first Christian or close to one of the first Christian boots on the ground in that context. And so part of that task is going to be to leave behind a Bible, yep. if at all possible. Yep. And I think historically you can see in the places where the Bible was not translated early in Christian early Christian movement, those are some of the places where Christianity receded the fastest. You know, yep. Particularly, one of the stories that comes to my mind is with in, in, in Arabia, um, Christianity went to Arabia very early, but they never translated the Bible into Arabic. Mm. And as a result, you know, Muhammad comes along and says, hey, you know, there's a Bible for Christian, you know, there's a Bible for Jews, there's a Bible for, for Greek-speaking people, where's our Bible? Right, right. And, and it gives an inroad. To, you know, at that time, already so much heresy had emerged. So I think you can see that throughout history of where the Bible goes, the church gets rooted, where it doesn't yeah. go. Right. we see problems. Right, right. One of the things that I want to get into in a minute is how some of the principles that we're going to discuss apply to anyone who's doing theology, anyone who's studying scripture at home or abroad, um, but specifically with Bible translation, what are some of the issues that you're facing right now uh, as far as methodologically? Uh, you talked about wanting that to be a, a ministry of the church, um, but why does that matter? What problems are you trying to solve in Bible translation in, in a way to do it more responsibly? Yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing before I preface any statement is saying, praise God for all the sincere work that Christians are doing to in very difficult places to get God's word into the language of other people. Yeah. Um, however, that being said, there are certain trends and directions methodologically in the field of Bible translation that are departures from how Christians have understood this for centuries, and especially in our, in our past as Reformed Christians, as Protestant Christians. One of those would certainly be the separating of Bible translation as a theological endeavor. And this is even part and parcel with the larger, we would maybe we would call it modernist movement, critical movement, post-enlightenment movement, whatever you want to label the construct. The idea that somehow we can individually understand God's word outside of any presuppositions or, or that those might even hinder us. And so there is a movement, and sometimes it's even explicit, that you don't want theological presuppositions when you translate the Bible, or it might hinder the task. And so then what you have happen is some poor decisions being made um, in Bible translation. Um, and related to that also is the nature of evangelism and the mission of the church. And again, when you translate the Bible outside the concerns of preaching and discipling, it'll also lead towards poor decisions. Uh, perhaps the most prominent would have been a few years back in the Son of God controversy that was fairly notable and got some press. And there was even uh, um, D.A. Carson wrote a book in response and others wrote some good material. And when you have um, translators that are considering translating Weostheo in Greek, which is Son of God, that's what it means um, as ambassador of God because the concept of God's son might be offensive to Muslims. In acute things like that, you realize we've lost the plot there. And when we're thinking about making translation decisions uh, in that way, um, and that's just an acute 
a notable example of a common trend that you point out many, many other examples of. And so you have these kinds of trends that are really demonstrative of a divorce from the Bible translation task, from our understanding of the mission of the church and our theological endeavor, and being divorced from the principles that have guided our Bible reading and our preaching. And even that, even when we, how do we consider the book of scripture? Is it a covenant text for a community? Or is it a sort of a, a religious text that sets individually? And that's gonna determine your translation philosophy. Now that whole issue can be fraught with misunderstanding, mischaracterization, I don't wanna do that. But to maybe simplify it, are we translating for an individual reader to read in isolation? Or are we translating for a preacher and a teacher to expound and a community to hear read and discussed? And that will determine- and a community with certain pre-commitments. Exactly, with yeah. pre-commitments. And that'll determine the parameters of right. even your direction. Do you leave a bit of the original ambiguity in a translation, or do you move towards a more paraphrastic um, you know, rendering, how you conceptualize the reader or the receiver at that point? Yeah. So there's a myriad of uh, apparently uh, technological decisions that are really rooted in theology, and they're rooted in commitments of, again, the mission of the church and evangelism. And so when those are separated, those are some of the things we see. And we could even talk, um, I'm, I'm, if I remember the episode rightly, I think Kyle went over this with you guys, the the, the speed approach where we're, we're we're getting people to translate Bibles and, you know, and advertising, well, we can get a New Testament translated in a couple of weeks. And, and there's just all sorts of questions and concerns we have about that kind of approach to yeah. Bible translation. And, and just to be explicit for maybe some of our audience that isn't steeped and immersed in these things too, when you talk about treating Bible translation as a theological endeavor, lest someone say like, well, of course it's theological. Uh, what, what we mean specifically by that is recognizing that, that my systemized theology, right, and, and what I hold, I'm gonna carry that with me right. into this endeavor. In other words, I'm not going to pretend that I don't believe in certain things, like the deity of Christ, for instance. I'm not gonna pretend that I don't believe right. in that right. and translate it as someone who's somehow agnostic or neutral about those things. Right. I'm, I'm going to come as someone who already knows the whole body of doctrine that we've been given, right. and I'm going to allow that to inform my reading and translation of the text, and, and lest someone think, well, wait, but that's not being objective. But why do we have to be objective? Because well, it's God's yeah. word and we know what it says. If I can yeah, jump yeah, in, yeah. If I can jump in on yeah, that absolutely. point. It's the, it's the difference between saying, like, looking at from something from an individualistic standpoint of saying, well, I need to be objective. I'm the first person to ever consider these things, <laughs> yeah. rather than recognizing what I think you're saying is we're part of a, a great tradition of Christian oh, witness. Said great tradition, you know, and uh, and we are we're we're part of that. You know, yes. we, we're sharing in yes. the faith that has been accepted and received by the right. church for millennia now. Right. We're not coming up with some new idea, nor are we pretending that somehow we're going to discover something new that no other Christian in the history of Christianity has ever, yeah. ever read before. And if we do, it's wrong, probably. Right. So I wanna, I wanna transition with that yeah. statement uh, to another question is, so this whole idea of, of understanding classical theology mm -hmm. and missionaries tend to be practical people. You know, we're thinking about 
better ways to reach the people we are working with and how to do things like Bible translation or how to meet physical needs so we have a better opportunity to share the gospel with them. But why would you, as a pastor, as someone dedicated to missions and focusing on, on translation and translation issues, why would you encourage a missionary to be become become very familiar with and become reacquainted with classical Christian theology? And yeah. And defining classical Christian theology too. We're not talking about Ryrie. Yeah, for instance. Oh, we're not? <laughs> no. Oh. Maybe a little further back than that. Okay, my, okay. Well, my first study Bible was a Ryrie study Bible. Uh, Why the Schofield? So, yeah. boom, in your face. <laughs> no. I think, you know, stepping back from that um, uh, question and, or approaching it, obviously, all the things you just mentioned in terms of the technicalities of missions and ways of preaching, uh, reaching people. And again, we thank God for all of the ways that Christians think far beyond I've ever thought about these things and I have much to learn from them. And so it's, we're thankful for that work. However, everything we do is inescapably theological. Um, you know, to, to be, you know, obvious, even an atheist has a theological position. It's a, that's a theological position. So the idea that somehow we're going to um, get rid of theological lenses for objectivity is, is, is a psychological fiction. It's illusory. Um, so, the, so we need to be self-consciously scriptural and biblical in our approach. And a lot of that is just remembering, sometimes I try to just break it down for Christians and just remembering that God has never given his word to his church apart from the means by which his church would be instructed in it. Mm -hmm. And this is so intuitive that sometimes we deny it in yeah. theory, what we assume in practice. So for example, if we're uh, you know, growing Christians, we're members of a church. Um, what happens as we gather with the church? Well, we have leaders and pastors who read God's word and who explain it to us. That's a means by which we're called to learn God's word. Um, even stepping back further, we are stepping into means as soon as you open an English Bible. Um, and sometimes I'll ask Christians, just open to your table of contents. And what you have there, you have books and Roman Catholics add in between the Testaments. Um, uh, Jewish, uh, our Jewish friends don't have the books that are in the New Testament. And we have other friends like Mormons that are adding books after the New Testament. So already with the table of contents, you're assuming some theological presuppositions. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that you can read it in English. Mm -hmm. There was a time where that was actually rejected by people who called themselves Christians. And so we, as soon as you open an English Bible, you have stepped into a tradition. Now, we are not saying the same thing that maybe our Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox friends would say and that the church has created the canon or it's the authority of the church. Right. No, we've always affirmed it. Scripture is self-authenticating. But how we come to know that and receive that is always through the means that God has given. And so you have the means of the printed text, the English Bible, you have a pastor. So we have local means that God has given us. We have geographical means by which we recognize other pastors and teachers, even why are we here at this conference, but to benefit from other brothers and sisters that are part of other communions and churches. And so we have measures of agreement and we're learning from them. Also, and this is probably where Christians may be um, in our day, and especially in our culture influenced by individualism as Americans, we also have a successive impact of the means of the teachers and preachers that God has given that have gone on before and yeah. though dead still speak. And especially those areas where Christians have all on the basis of God's word agreed and developed consensus mm -hmm. and written that consensus down in things like creeds and confessions and handed down, those things are means by which 
God teaches and instructs us and that goes beyond certainly uh, the authority I have as a, as a pastor over my local church because it, we're talking about a breadth of Christians and brothers and sisters that go before us. And so all of these means God has given to instruct us in his word. Now, again, being very clear, uh, none of those is infallible. And what we reject uh, in the Protestant Reformation from Rome is the idea of an infallible interpreter. Yeah. We do not believe in an infallible yeah, right. interpreter. And everything I just mentioned is subject to the final authority of Scripture. Or in uh, our confession, the Second London Confession, uh, chapter 1, paragraph 9, it refers to Scripture as the supreme judge. So Scripture is the full and final authority for all faith and practice, period. Every other human means is subject. But, but in, in God's design, we shouldn't see these as competitive they're, they're concurrent realities. We have God's word. We're being taught by our, our local pastors. We're having the heritage uh, that comes before us. And so all of that is a means by which we can understand God's word and God intends for us to approach his word that way. No one should ever act like the Bible fell from the sky last Tuesday and they're the first person to read that. If you do, you're more, most likely to just recycle some old heresy and error. We only have right, so many- all the heretics had their Bible verses. Exactly, yeah. they all did. Yeah. And there's only so many logical options you have in reading scripture. And so you're, you're either gonna arrive at the truth or you're gonna recycle some error that we, at this yeah. point in church history we've already done with. And so God doesn't intend for us to forget that, to act like we don't have pastors, to act like no one's taught the Bible before, to act like the church has not written things down to help us and minister God's word to us. And so what we would say is just those things then matter as we come to God's word, to, if we're gonna preach it, if we're gonna teach it, and if we're gonna translate it. Right. And, and a couple things, one, I, I think that on a different level, when we're talking about something like the Son of God controversy or Muslim insider Bible translations, um, there, there is a tendency to let a tradition inform the reading of the text, but it's not Christian tradition. Right, exactly. it's, it's a foreign, yeah. non-Christian tradition um, from outside the text. So in one way, people that want to keep a very open mind and say, well, I'm, I'm not letting certain pre-commitments drive me. Well, you're, you're letting a, a, a foreign set of, of preconditions yeah. drive you in a, in a very different way. Yep. Um, I, I think something else too, I think if people are getting lost in like, wait, I, I thought we believed in, you know, scripture alone, sola scriptura, and, and what you're saying sounds, you know, a, a little bit like the, the church does get to interpret, um, you know, scripture infallibly. If people are trying to reconcile that, I think a good resource is The Shape of Sola Scriptura by yep. Keith Matheson. I agree. Where he really walks out, there's, it's not just, you know, Rome's position versus our position. It, most of the time for evangelicals, when they talk about sola scriptura, what they mean and what they, they unfortunately um, fall into the error of thinking is, is of solo scriptura, that yep. it's me and my Bible under a tree alone, yep. versus <laughs> versus the, the tradition and the thinking and the work of the church to understand the text of scripture, subservient to the text of scripture, right. but then again, they're complementary means yep. of grace. Yep. That's the historic Protestant position, which is to be contrasted with Rome, where, where the church is the infallible interpreter. Right. And right. there's some nuances there that he kind of fleshes out. Unfortunately, we talk past each other because yep. uh, we think that Rome just thinks that they dictate the text of scripture and, and that's not quite what Rome believes. Yep. And we end up defending an indefensible position, which is solo scriptura, right. the Bible and nothing else, no outside helps, yep. no acknowledgement of, of the great tradition of the church through the last two millennia and counting. Yep. Um, but to play devil's advocate for just a minute, sure. that's usually your job. Yeah, yeah, but kind I'm of. gonna, yeah, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna pretend I'm Scott. I'm gonna advocate for Satan. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm glad he's doing it. Not me. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 yeah, just you know, you mix it up every now and then. But to play devil's advocate, there are texts of Scripture that are ambiguous. 
there, there is reconciling, harmonizing that has to be done in the interpretive process. Of course. Um, if we come in and, and let's just say, you know, my, my pre-commitment is to Nicene Orthodoxy. Am I going to run the risk of flattening out some jagged edges on the text, mm -hmm. you know, and, and is there a case to be made for, you know, I'm taking, yes, a, a good and godly and helpful church tradition, but maybe it's also the, the product of Greco-Roman thought that informed, you know, patristic Christianity, yeah. and I'm going to impose that cultural context back onto the text of scripture. You know, that's a critique that might be aimed yeah. in your direction. How would you respond to something like that? Yeah, well, maybe let's step back a couple, and there's a lot there in your in your uh, advocacy for the evil one. Um, <laughs> uh, we can, uh, and we can, uh, to unwind. I think, I think one is just remembering sola scriptura, like any other concept, has a historic and confessional context. And um, tradition, which is kind of a boogeyman for many modern uh, Protestant yeah. Christians, um, just means to be passed down. Uh, the word Trinity is tradition to us. We receive it by tradition. We're not saying it's not biblical. Right. We're saying we received it. You didn't, but you didn't, what we are saying is you didn't come up with Trinity last week in your quiet time. Right. You didn't sit and read scripture and think, you know what? I think Trinity will really capture the being of God from what I see in the New Testament. No, it, that was handed down to us. And even if you can't unwind, um, it, you know, the average Christian can't unwind all the detail and nuance in Nicene, Trinitarian Orthodoxy, it, they know that if a guy gets in the pulpit and says, I think we should reject the Trinity, some red flags are going to yeah. start waving. Yes, because sure. this is what Christians have said about God for centuries, and that matters. Right. Um, and so I think just remembering that, um, and then that helps us then to, as we hear things, and maybe they sound new and foreign to us, the question, of course, is always, well, what does the Bible teach? And I think what may, what may surprise many modern Christians, and really it's just the basis of, you know, I think modern prejudice. I don't think it's conscious or malicious by every Christian. Um, but you have this modern prejudice that somehow the believers in the past were less concerned about Scripture than we do. And what I would do is I would just challenge um, Christians, go back and read Athanasius and read Gregory of Nazianzus. And now they're all free online. Yeah. So go back and read these guys. What were they doing? They were exegeting or interpreting the Bible. Yeah. And they were yeah. dealing with texts of scripture. Yeah. And they, if we just assume that the saints that went before us were at least as half concerned about the Bible as we were, and many of them suffered far greater than we did for it, um, then maybe we might give have a disposition and of a posture of, trust and humility towards their reasoning, be opening to it, and see what are the things that they came to and, con and concluded. And, and why did they decide to go to the terms they did? Now, we, we, we get into the whole issue of, of Greco-Roman thought being imposed on the text and weren't early Christians using terms that would come out of philosophy. Of course they were. The word theology came out of philosophy. It was Plato's sure. term before Christianity. Um, but what Homoousius, were the, nature, all these, yeah, exactly. all these different contexts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but yeah. What, what they were doing was reading scripture and how do we put words to the ineffable? Our great God. How do we describe it? Exodus 3.14, the Lord says to Abraham, I am who I am. God is. How am I going to communicate that? Right? I'm a pastor. I got to get up and I got to explain God's word to God's people. And I can't just keep repeating scriptural right. terms. Well, who's God? God is. So Christians said, you know what? We can get terms like ousia and essentia. And well, let's use the label being. Now we're going we're gonna to scrub off the associations that the philosophers meant by it. But that's a pretty good term for us to describe what we mean by 
God. He has an existence. He has a being. Yeah. Um, now we have to write books and describe what we mean by that, and what we do, and our affirmations being and denials. Being isness. Yeah, so it's, if it he is. says I am, exactly. There you go. Yeah. yeah, and so that's what you see developing. And if we go back and we go read these writings, we read what surrounds the uh, credo consensus of the church. We realize these guys were grappling with the same text we are, and we have the benefit because this developed over centuries, where guys are building on other guys' writings and thoughts and saying, well, maybe we should nuance it a little bit more specifically here or there. And that will help us. We want to get rid of, you know, the, the idea that Christianity got encrusted by Greco-Roman thought, you know, after a couple centuries in the New Testament. That was actually developed by 19th century liberals who right. wanted to destroy right. Christian orthodoxy. Yeah. And so let's not drink from those wells. Yeah. And, and, and even for those that might say, well, this isn't related to an, to an Asian context or something, or an African context. Like, if you really get into who the fathers were, they were coming from Africa. They were dealing with Asian yeah. issues. Like, yeah. you know, especially especially the, the fathers in the East. I mean, the yeah. things they were wrestling with are so relevant to yeah. dealing with they modern Eastern American culture. No, like the, individualists. The, yeah, the introduction sure. to the Nicene Creed deals with, you know, deals with how, like the, the the disunity of the gods and how they show virtue. I was just reading yeah. about this recently, and I was like, well, this is so uh, so applicable to working with Hindus, for instance. Oh yeah. And and so like one little resource that I've enjoyed picking up little bits by at a time is a little uh, the popular patristic series. Yeah, yeah. Which they're they're really small volumes. They're easy. They're super. Uh, Accessible translations, mm -hmm. and they're so what's, devotional. What's the name of that series again? The popular patristics. Popular patristics. So like okay. Athanasius yep. on the incarnation. Yep. Oh, you know, like yeah. Saint Basil on yeah. uh, on the Holy Spirit. You know, you just. Yeah. They're awesome and they're really easy to read. Yeah. If you don't, if you want to find a place, I think to jump. Yeah. In, you just think Puritan that. paperback for patristics. Yeah. yeah. Basically they're beautiful. The idea. Yep. Do you have any other recommendations for a missionary who's like, hey, I, what you're saying sounds good. I'm not really that familiar with this stuff. Where do I jump in? Yeah. Um, Lewis Iyer's Nicaea and its uh, legacy. I think I got that right. Would be helpful. Uh, Patrick Fairburn and another brother I'm blanking on co-author the story of creeds and confessions. Mm. That would probably be one great. Yeah you know, entry point, because it starts, moves from the patristics into the Reformation confessions, mm -hmm. and gives just a good, it's the title, the story of creeds and confessions. Um, uh, I'm blanking on his name, it's in a series uh, called Know the Creeds and Councils, Justin Holcomb, uh, Know the Creeds and Councils, and this gives context and understanding, and I've personally talked to many missionaries and church planners going to unreached people groups and said, get very familiar with this, yeah. because yeah. this is a starting point for your engagement with these yeah. worldviews. Now you may have to write and build confessions that goes from here because there's yeah. other issues that weren't in the uh, the thought spectrum of our the past, but start there. Don't reinvent yeah. the wheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. don't reinvent That's the so wheel. And, and you know, you hear sometimes a, a remote tribe will say to a missionary like, well, you know, where have you been, you know, all along sort of right. thing, right? right. Um, you know, it, it took 2,000 years for this message to get here. At the same time, missionaries should go in Recognizing, I'm I'm a representative of a, of a kingdom that's been going for 2,000 yep. years, and and before that, you know, too, as well, and and to be able to represent that well, and, and the thinking that's that, that we're we're bringing you this message, you know, I'm an ambassador for Christ, and yes. and here's what He's done among people that have belonged to Him yeah. in those ages. Exactly, uh, we have so much to rejoice in. We we don't want to starve people of the richness, and we want to avail ourselves of those treasures as well. Yeah. yeah, and in my experience teaching internationally for what it's worth, teaching pastors in, in Asia and Africa, they have always been eager to hear more 
about church history and theology because they're a part of the beloved body of Christ and they yeah. want to know about their brothers and sisters. Yeah. And so I don't think we should let maybe some of the modern fears of you know uh, colonizing someone's mind and all this kind of stuff. Uh, our brothers and sisters around the world want to know of the yeah. body of which they're a part and, and we should bring them those treasures. Yeah. Well, how can people hear more from you and, and maybe follow you on, on Twitter or somewhere else, um, interact with you or with Bible Translation Fellowship? Yeah, definitely. Uh, BibleTranslationFellowship.org is a website. There are a ton of resources on there that go further into how theology informs Bible translation and the decisions we make. Because we believe that Bible translation and church missions should be integrated, that dictates decisions like where do you translate? Uh, do you go somewhere that's an unreached group and no church? Or do you go somewhere where there's already a church and no Bible? So we think that's an important issue methodologically. Um, and how the God's called us, the, our incorporeal, invisible, spiritual God has called us to see Him by His Word. And that dictates the means of worship and Bible translation. So our founder, Kyle, is actually working on a PhD right now on a theology of Bible translation. And so we hope to have more content like that being produced soon. That's but awesome. Bible translation fellowship.org. He also has a bunch of YouTube videos he did. Uh, Bible translation can get pretty geeky really fast. Yeah. And is, can we be, got pretty geeky real fast we here did. too. Yeah. So it, it, can be, the course. it can be hard for people to grasp, but he's done short videos on YouTube that would be great for small groups or elderships. How do we understand Bible translation? Mm. What are some of the issues at play? Um, those would be great great to watch. Um, you can also follow BTF on uh, Twitter at PrayForBTF. Um, you can follow me if you're interested at Steve Meister VDM on Twitter. And then um, and that has most of other links related to our uh, church. And then the uh, podcast I'm on with my fellow pastor, Robert Briggs, particularly Baptist. Um, and uh, we hope to keep putting out more content to encourage us. And many of these very things as it relates to our own tradition. Yeah, very good. Well, we're glad you could join us, Steve. Yeah, and hope to do it again soon. And thank you for watching and listening to the Missions Podcast today as we come to you from the Radius Missiology Conference here at Christ Covenant Church. And to get more content, go to missionspodcast.com. Subscribe if you're not already a subscriber. Leave us a positive rating and review, and that'll help get the content in front of other people that can be blessed by it. You can partner with us, missionspodcast.com slash support. And the Missions Podcast, as always, is a ministry of ABWE. To learn more about ABWE, go to abwe.org. Until next time, from Radius here in North Carolina, thank you for watching and listening.